Hi everyone, welcome to Unplugged by Good Bets, where we provide the latest tips, strategies, and straightforward advice to underdog entrepreneurs and anyone who wants to leave a legacy by launching and growing a thriving social enterprise. I'm Nicole Jarbo from the Good Bets Group, and I'll be your host as we dive into the world of successful social entrepreneurship. Our episodes will be a hodgepodge. Some days we'll answer your most urgent startup questions, and others will interview founders you should know but we'll always provide practical and unfiltered advice to help you build a better venture faster. Hi, thanks for tuning in to Good Bets Unplugged. This is Veronica. I am the director of the pilot here at Good Bets. It's a program that we launched this year to help early stage social entrepreneurs advance their business. And part of it is really awesome content that we threw together um, with the goal of helping people learn about new things that are very useful to starting a business or a nonprofit. So this week on the podcast, we wanted to share some of the content that we just did on fundraising. Uh, So this covers some nonprofit fundraising, uh, for-profit startup fundraising, and we had a Q&A with Nicole, who's the director of GoodBets and knows so many good things about fundraising. So without further ado, here we go. You guys are for profits, so not as relevant, but I'm still gonna go through it. For nonprofits, these are all the sources of funding um, that are available, so private foundations, community foundations, corporate grants, sponsorship, corporate gifts, this could be in-kind, this could be swag, anything like that. Uh, Government, so that's federal, state, and local. Um, Prizes, so if you've heard of the X Prize, things like that, those are all opportunities. In the arts and cultural space and media space, actually, there are a variety of prizes, so that's a place that both of you might think about as well. So if you feel like what you're doing is really competitive, there are a lot of opportunities for you to compete against other organizations that are starting up. Um, accelerators and individuals. All right, so for for-profits, this will be relevant to you all. Um, bootstrapping, right, so making your own money by either selling services and, and other things. I'm going to actually do a sort of a bonus content session on ways you can earn revenue as a social impact organization, where we'll talk about consulting and retail and different types of innovations that can make you money. So um, Veronica will let you know and that Veronica will let you know and that's happening. Friends and family, angels, crowdfunding, it's your Kickstarter, um, things like Kickstarter, accelerators and incubators. Grants, um, particularly in the sort of R&D space for like larger grants, they're mostly federal, but sometimes you'll find them at the state and local level as well, um, and from companies. Uh, prizes like the X Prize and loans, which we don't often talk a lot about anymore. I'm not sure why, but loans are actually a really great way to get started if you don't want to give up any equity. I think if you look at friends and family, down to accelerators, most of them actually do take equity, which means that you are giving up some of the control of your company. Uh, So I just wanna be clear with that. Does anyone have any questions before I keep going? All right, cool. If you do, I think there's a raise hand function. So if you use that, then I'll find you. Or actually just raise your hands and I'll see, like Alberta did. That's funny. Um, oh, you actually have a question. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So um, I've gone back and forth on the the nonprofit and for profit thing for a really long time, and um, and right now as like an LLC with a fiscal agent, I kind of maybe incorrectly, and you should let me know. 
think about myself as equivalent to a nonprofit because of that fiscal sponsorship. Yeah. So, which I'm sure is like wrong in some way. So, so I'd like to hear at some point, like, you know, how, how I am different. Are there a significant amount of, um, things that I wouldn't be able to apply for, how people regard that kind of like setup, you know, generally, um, you know, I know things like there's a fee with the fiscal agent. And then once you're making, if you're raising a lot of money, you don't want to pay that fee anymore. So you might as well be not a nonprofit. But anyway, I'd like to kind of like learn more about that dynamic. Yeah, cool. So there's a Q and A and I would say, as we go through the content, pay close attention to both okay. because you can be in a situation in which both are really, really relevant depending on the actual funder, right? So there are organizations that are private foundations but are set up as LLCs. Um, yeah, so they're set up as LLCs. So the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, for example, the Emerson Collective, for example, they can invest. Um, Bill Melinda Gates, their foundation also invests in for profits. So there are actually a lot of foundations out there that are comfortable with that. Um, things look a little different, more so in the ed space too, for the ed reform space. Walton is another foundation that will fund for profits. So it's not as, it's not as much of a deal breaker as you might feel like it is, but it requires like good alignment. But keep all your questions till the end that are about that, uh, and we'll dig into it because this might be relevant. Both sides will be relevant for you. Cool. Thank you. All right. Um, this is for nonprofits, so everything we just talked about, generally, those are the ways that you can get funding. I would say most nonprofits have one or two uh, main sources of funding. As they grow bigger, they try to expand that funding, right? So if I'm a nonprofit, I might get most of my funds from private foundations, which is likely for startup organizations, but then I might build a strategy around um, individual donations, for example, or even earned revenue. So generally, people are at one or two, um, one or two revenue sources that they put all of their time and effort into cultivating, and then um, as they grow, they sort of expand into other stuff. All right, so I want to talk actually about support type. Again, this is not going to be relevant to everybody, but I want to be clear about the opportunity for folks. And I'm gonna give you all of this deck so you can look at it later. Um, all right, so basically what this chart shows uh, is some data that was collected from nonprofits at various sizes. So this is by budget, starting from less than $100,000, you can see in the X axis above in that row, um, all the way to 25 plus, which we'd call extra large, but as we know, there's some nonprofits out there that are in the half a billion plus range. Um, so basically, folks who are at the sort of medium budget, so under a million, which I feel like that's where most people are going to be for the first couple of years, the majority of grants that they, um, the support that they get is for asks for general support. And so often if you talk to a development person, they often push you to just be like, tell them about your whole project and just ask for a grant to get the whole project up and running. Um, that's, that's kind of what that means. Advocacy is any kind of advocacy work that you do. I'm not going to talk about a lot because it's really not relevant to the pilot. Um, but capacity building, so that's hiring consultants, things like that. There's about a 6% uh, success rate for asking for those things. 
equipment and events and building infrastructure are at two and one percent. And the reason that I wanted to show this is because often when folks are starting out, they do this thing where they're like, we need a marketing consultant. So we should ask someone for a grant for that because it makes sense because it feels like what we need. But if you're looking at success, that's way lower success in terms of actually getting a grant than just asking for your whole organization and being really clear about the line items and actually managing the funds yourself. So that's a big sort of misconception that folks have once as they start. They do this thing where they break up everything into a line item and they're like, if we can get marketing done, then we're solid. If we can get my salary done, then like we're solid. But instead, as you start really think about building up that total budget, but tailing, tailoring your ass to be more general. That was a lot, or it sounded like a lot in my head. So again, if you have a question, just do this and I'll see you. All right, and this piece is pretty important. So this is actually the same, the same chart, but it's just sort of the second part of it because I don't have enough room. Um, project and program are generally where folks get the bulk of their funding in terms of ass. So what this means, general operating support is still there, um, but asking for a particular project or program specifically is gonna get folks in the beginning the, the biggest like success in terms of like winning that grant, right? So project and program for you, Patrick, might be like one specific podcast. And then you would go into detail about a funder supporting that specific um, piece, right? Um, Alberta, for you, depending on how you're talking about the organization, you could say LA is a project um, if you wanted to, right? And we are like a burgeoning national organization. We've worked in New Orleans, et cetera. We have partnerships in Boston um, and LA. We want money to build out LA. And so what you would do is you tailor the ask specifically to this program. Um, that will give folks just more confidence because generally the expectations in terms of metrics that you meet are really, really clear for the funder. Once you start asking for operating support, you go into this more like blurry area where like they're not really sure what impact, you know, you should give them. They're just really believing in you and as, as an organization and they're not really looking for results in this sort of like tight confined space. So the way that I think about it, and I should make like some kind of visual about this, is that when you begin your relationship with a funder, you want to be really, really clear and prove to them that your project, your theory of change works. And as the relationship grows, you can start going towards more unrestricted opportunities. Okay, cool. I see head nodding. Yeah. All right, nonprofits. Here's some things that nonprofit funders kind of care about. So what are the things that compel them to give? Um, a lot of things. So participation and attendance in your actual project. Um, this might be relevant to you, Patrick. So if you can say like, we are consistently getting 10,000 downloads and here are sort of the demographics of those folks, like that is really compelling to funders, especially for sponsors who want to target a specific demographic, right? And so that, that's sort of one piece. If you have a program, so Unlock Labs, which is also in the pilot, um, they have a program where people who are incarcerated um, learn skills. Them getting job offers or something at the end is something that a funder would care about, right? Like this actually works. It's improving the quality of life for folks in this tangible um, way. 
completing the program. So maybe 100% of the people who start the program complete it. That's actually really compelling for funders because as we know, Patrick and Alberta, I know you have, well, Patrick, you're in education now. And Alberta, I know that you have been um, getting people to start something and finish it is actually really hard. So those are things that uh, funders really care about. Racial and ethnic demographics, other social demographics of your customers or users. So that's gonna be really important as well. What communities are you working in? If a funder really, really cares about, um, let's say the Latinx population in LA from like the middle school to high school, like those might be compelling funders for you, Alberta, even if they're not giving to the arts, right? So I don't want you all to think about like, oh, this person only gives to the arts or only gives to schools. You know, they're not an opportunity for me. If you're serving who they most care about, then there probably is an opportunity. It just might not be as apparent to you. So these are all ideas that I think about a lot. Um, when I'm prospecting for folks and trying to help them find funders because there's a lot of overlap and it's really about meeting that funder and seeing where you align because you may not align on the actual program you're doing but who you serve and what you want to happen with that community might be in strong alignment. Um, a couple of other things so can you save people money that's huge are you making money so this is nonprofit focused but, and this is sort of like counterintuitive, I guess, but the more money you make, the more people want to give you money, even in the nonprofit space. So this is not just a phenomena and phenomenon in like nonprofit or for-profit world. It also happens in nonprofits. If you're consistently making money, what that proves to a funder is what you do brings a lot of value to folks. And so they're going to be looking at that as a, a trigger um, as well in their due diligence process. Um, what else is interesting? All right, closing gaps. So this one is another piece that folks look for. It's also true of for-profits in the social impact space. So are you showing some kind of gap closing between two populations? So in education, that could be closing the achievement gap. In workforce, it might be closing the opportunity gap, right? So we have, you know, 3%, engineers of color from these communities, you showing that you can move that to 20, 30, et cetera, through your programming, that's sort of the gap closing um, piece I'm talking about. And then national, state, and global comparisons. So that's really looking at how we're doing compared to other places that have sort of set the standard for the same work that you're doing. You are gonna get this. Again, if you have questions, just raise your hand but I'm gonna keep going. All right, let's go to for-profit. So this little cute thing I stole from a book that is a resource at the end of this um, that you all should take a look at called Get Backed. It's focused on tech companies and raising venture capital, but I actually think it's a really good resource for nonprofits um, as well. All right, so you can kind of see this. So we're looking at on this, uh, Y axis, we're looking at how much money you actually need. And then on the X, we're looking at what stage you're in. So this really just shows when you're at speed stage, so that's very, very beginning of your work where you know you all are right now, the, prim the primary funding mechanisms for for-profits are gonna be angels, crowdfunding, family and friends, and accelerators. 
I don't have anything else to say about that. But as you grow, um, venture capital becomes more attractive, um, will become more attractive for you because you'll need large infusions of cash. And I'll talk about what those numbers are on this slide. All right. You all can read this. Um, but I'm going to focus on friends and family and accelerators. So let's just be real. I think one of the reasons we put this pilot on is because we wanted to, we wanted to engage with people who didn't feel like they had a strong friends and family opportunity for funding. So I see you, me too. Um, I, I want, I just want to like point that out and just be like, I get it. Not all of us can ask people in our personal network for money. Um, but it is still there. I think if you all want to ask questions specifically about how to navigate that, even if you feel like you come from a community that doesn't have a lot of wealth, like we can talk about that too, because I think you'd be surprised, right? What happens when you start asking and how to identify people who want to invest in you. So that's an aside though. Um, so for you all, accelerators, so things like, you know, Camelback, Echoing Green, those types of things, I would consider an accelerator um, and crowdfunding. So asking your community. Actually, I think both of you, this is an opportunity. Patrick, maybe you more so, just because of the, the nature of your work and like the reach you can have. What does it look like for your listeners to give you five bucks a month? Right? Like, what did you say? I'm pretending I have a journal, it's just a piece of paper. Uh, all right, so you have 3,000 followers, right? Like, if everyone gives you five bucks, like, that's $15,000, I think. Um, and that's like, you're just asking people for five bucks, right? And so, I just want to put that out there as well. Like the goal for you all is to provide value to the community. And in our world, like if we get value, typically we exchange money for it. And so just think of different ways that you can like support your work. And it doesn't have to be asking your audience necessarily, uh, but it could be. And also I have a recommendation for you to read Patrick as you think about your business model. Uh, there's an essay by, I think, I think it's Kevin Kelly. A Kevin, I'm not gonna say, because this is recording. But he writes a, an essay called A Thousand True Fans, if you haven't heard of that. And he really talks about how you can make a good living by really just having a thousand people who are just diehard fans of the content you put out there. And I think it's really hopeful for creators who wanna continue to do that, their work and have a sustainable life. And not only that, but just a successful life, right? Like. Um, you know, you can make $100,000 a year if everyone in the community buys and loves everything you put together and there are only a thousand of them, which is not that many people, right? It's a third of the people that you have Patrick as followers right now. All right, so angel investors, they can give anywhere, I would, you know, from $25,000, $10,000 to $500,000. This is sort of the typical range um, for folks and these are people that, again, when you think about network, I just want to put this out there. You know, I've helped a lot of people raise money from nothing. I'm in the for-profit space, mostly tech. And I think you'd be surprised by how many people, like, love you that would give you money because they are investors and you just don't know. 
So I would say almost every single person that I've worked with on the for-profit side who's looking for angel investment had a college professor give them seed funding or angel funding, right? And so there's there's small things like that, which again, we can talk about in Q&A, but really try to expand what friends and family and angels sort of look like for you personally. So you can do a lot with 20 grand. Uh, Venture capital is for big places uh, and generally high growth organizations. All right, so um, this is a little bit more tech oriented, but um, this is a slide from a, from a pitch deck that I actually think does a really good job of just showing what kind of metrics folks care about in the space. And so you can see the breakdown from, if you look at the bottom and look at the numbers on the bottom, you'll see annual contract value. So they're trying to just basically build a case around um, how much specific customers are worth, um, not specific, but customers are worth in their, uh, in their business model, right? So $450 customer acquisition cost for them is 110. So for every customer they get, they basically spend a hundred bucks. So these are numbers on, in the for-profit sort of world that you all wanna get familiar with, right? So if every customer, so for you, Alberta, since you have sort of an agency going, for every customer that you get, say the average of the contract is $5,000 um, for you all to do some kind of retainer work or something like that. Say that the marketing budget that you put in, the time in terms of business development conversations, all the investments you make, you you generally take that number and um, look for the difference, right? So. If you're spending, if your time is worth 50 bucks and you're spending XYZ hours on this, plus you put XYZ into marketing and other channels in terms of sales processes and operations, how much does it actually cost for you to bring a customer in? And of course, you want to get that margin to be as big as possible because that's going to be cost saving for you. Right? This is why people like things like social media ads, other things. <clears throat> because they're relatively cheap um, actually in terms of um, getting people to convert and just spending money. Let's see what else is important here. And I would say customer lifetime value, something to always be thinking about, um, but it might not be super important to you all since you just started. But when a customer comes to you, like how long are they with you? How much money are they actually giving you um, throughout that relationship lifetime? Alberta, if you ever go for investment for the agency part of your work, this is something you're going to want to, to know the number of, right? Like most of your money as you grow is going to come from uh, current customers or past customers. Veronica, if you have anything to add to, feel free to just like throw stuff out there. What's ARR, Darbo? Um, where is it? It's on like the second bullet point on that slide. I think it's annual recurring revenue, but I'm not exactly sure. I would say it's that. Um, I my only thing to add is I had an investor tell me once that the biggest thing they look for is something like exponential growth, um, especially in the world of VC um, yeah. venture capital. They're mostly concerned with seeing a large return, which is maybe difficult for some of us 
within the pilot is, you know, you're more concerned about social impact, whereas investors are concerned about seeing a company grow in a tremendous way versus seeing a social impact. Um, I think that's, that's really all I have to add to that. Yeah. And so those things on the side too, I mean, that first one, Veronica really hit like it. I can't read all of it. Um, a pattern of fast growing momentum. Like that's totally it. On the VC side, they want returns because generally um, they are, I forget what they're, they're called, something special, something vehicle. But what they are, they're just basically stewarding other people's money to get a return. So like basically their job is to get a return. And so a lot of us have been really like intrigued by venture capital and other kind of, people don't talk that much about like private equity or anything like that. But generally these folks are looking to take $1 and turn it into a hundred thousand. And um, I don't actually, like, I don't say that to discourage anybody, but I think it's something to think about if you have ambitions to build that kind of company and take in that kind of financing, because you can start designing your work in a way now in which you look more attractive to those kinds of investors. Um, and that's like a longer conversation, but I don't think it's impossible. I think there are ways that you can do good um, and do well, so to speak, at the same time. But it really, I think it's a matter of design and effort. Yeah, and I, I do wanna add too, is that venture capital is sold as like a really, I can't think of a more professional word, but like a very sexy option. Um, but it, it's not the only way. Um, it's totally possible to do something through like bootstrapping yourself and through other sources of funding. I think venture capital is just seen as something that's very mainstream, but it's important to recognize that that's not the only way to get there. We don't want you to look for venture capital is what we're saying. Yeah. Basically. But there, there is a book um, that I recommend if you're really like, did I build the right thing? Should I build a VC-backed company that grows and is massive? Um, the book is called Small Giants by Bo, gosh, Bertlingham, maybe. Um, he talks about these companies that are massive companies that never wanted to give up any control or equity of their company. And uh, a lot of them are like brands that we know well. So I definitely recommend that if you're like, wait, everyone I know talks about venture capital and I have a for-profit. So like I need to raise venture capital. It's not necessarily true. Um, but again, if that's of interest, we can talk about it uh, offline. All right, I'm gonna keep moving. Almost at the end. I think my agenda is at the end, which is gonna be awkward, but this is something that I've linked in this document that Veronica has adapted from Village Capital, uh, which is a, a VC firm out of DC that invests globally on more social impact oriented organizations. Um, and yeah, so basically they put this thing together called startup, they call it viral startup pathways, but they wanted to map the journey and the milestones for people and, and kind of show in relation to things like value proposition. Where are you there? And if you're this developed, then maybe the right funding level for you is friends and family. Maybe you're ready to go to an institutional VC, et cetera. I'm not gonna go through all of these pieces because we've adapted it to only include the bottom six that we, are, we think are important for you all. 
So that's like, what should your team look like? Where should you be on your articulation of your problem and vision? Um, what is the value proposition? Is it proven? Uh, product, does your product suck, basically? Is it developed? Is it ready for scale, et cetera? Um, the market, how well do you know the market? Um, and how are they responding to what value you're providing? And your business model, like do you have a real business model that works and actually makes you capital? And so you all will have a copy of this, but I think it's a really great tool in terms of thinking about if you're ready to actually get the kind of funding or even to position yourself in ways more attractively to investors. I think it's also a good checklist for yourself to look at and say, am I building the kind of company that I've dreamed about? Am I hitting these milestones? Um, and does it, am I validating um, you know, to myself externally through channels we know actually like are established that I'm building something of value that's long lasting. So I'm not gonna go through it because obviously there are a lot of things, but I would say as you think about yourselves as sort of solo practitioners at this point, and I know that you all work with other folks in, a different, in different capacities, but I would really look at the problem and vision, the value prop, actually probably all of these things, but I would kind of focus on your problem and vision articulation first, um, then look at your value proposition and actually go down that line till you get to business model and see what makes sense for you. The reason that I would start with problem and vision is because I think if you can't articulate this part well and you're not identifying something that's relevant to your community of users, you can't do anything else. You can't build anything valuable for people. You can't identify the right market and you can't build, you know, you can't actually build a model from a business perspective that gets you funded. Thanks for tuning in to Good Bets Unplugged this week. I hope you really enjoyed that and found it useful. If you want to participate in the future content sessions we have coming up, uh, there's branding, marketing, how to pitch your business, some really useful stuff. Feel free to look. Uh, there's a link in the show notes that'll show you how you can like sign up and register for that stuff. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a question you'd like us to answer or an idea for a show? Email us at hello at goodbets.co with unplugged in the subject line. If you want to learn more about GoodBets Group and our work, then visit us at goodbets.co. That's G-O-O-D-B-E-T-S dot C-O. Till next time.